You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Art of History podcast. My name is Amanda Matta. I'm your host. I have a degree in art history, and I do think that museum dates are the best dates. So it kind of makes sense that I would have ended up podcasting about art at some point, if you think about it. If you're new to Art of History, the premise here is pretty simple. Each episode, I select a work of art that can tell us something about the past. Today, that is going to also tell us something, I think, about our present moment in time, but we'll get to that in just a moment. First, I would normally ask you to rate, review, subscribe to the show, and while I'm still going to ask you to do those things today, I also have one other request to make of you. This podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network, and every year Airwave Media launches a listener survey that helps us gain insight into what you, who are listening to this podcast, want to hear. You can find a link to the listener survey in the description of this episode, or you can go to surveymonkey.com slash r slash airwave. This listener survey is really, really important, not just so that Airwave gets information about what you want to hear as a listener, but also so I get to know you a little bit better and learn what you want from my podcast. A lot of the works of art that are going to feature in upcoming episodes of the show are from listener suggestions, and some of the suggestions that you've sent me have already made it into episodes. So there's not only that piece of things helping me decide which artworks to feature, but also I welcome feedback on ways I can improve the format of the show and the technical aspects of it. While podcasting is not my full-time job, I do want to make sure that you're enjoying what I'm putting out. So the survey only takes a few minutes and there's a section at the end where you can pretty much tell me whatever you want to tell me. So be nice, please. Um, the survey, again, you can hit the link in the episode description or you can go to surveymonkey.com r slash airwave. And if you do complete the survey, you will have an option to enter to win a $500 Amazon gift card at the end. So a little bit of an incentive for you there. Thank you in advance for your support of this podcast and the entire Airwave Media Network family of podcasts. We all so appreciate the time that you're going to take to give us some feedback. Now, without further ado, let's get into the whole reason you're here. Uh, if you've peeked at the episode description or the artworks for today, which are going to be over on the Instagram for the show at Art of History Podcast, you are probably chomping at the bit to get into this, and I can understand why. Because today's painting, titled Magdalena Ventura with her husband and son, is alternately and perhaps more famously known by the title The Bearded Woman. Now, if that phrase makes you think of anything, it probably makes you think of carnival sideshows and these very, I would say, 20th century ideas of freak shows and things like that. Um, we're in the 1600s here. We're in the 17th century today with Magdalena Ventura and her husband and son. This is a painting that I have not seen in person. I stumbled upon it while I was just, you know, down a Wikipedia rabbit hole, um, looking through some Baroque art. And I think like many of you seeing this for the first time, my reaction was, what the heck is going on? This painting immediately calls to mind some very tough issues, I would say, to discuss about gender identity and presentation, as well as some discussions of the way that humans view the different, the odd, the quote-unquote bizarre. 
to that point, I'm going to be using some language today, heavily, heavily quoted, um, that does feel a little icky for me to use, but a lot of it is pulled directly from sources and reflects the worldview of the audience that this painting was originally intended to be viewed by, namely 17th century Spanish uh, and Italian and just in general European viewers. Today, I think our understanding of what makes people unique and the way that people present themselves to the world has evolved uh, so much, just an insane amount when you look back, and we'll get into that today as well. But also we're going to do some discussion of gender, which today is largely understood as a fluid concept. And while there's an increasingly loud minority masquerading as a silent majority who insist that men are men and women are women, and that's just the way it's always been, a look through the lens of art history, particularly in this painting, proves that that's just one way that we can quickly realize how flawed that worldview is. The lines between the genders and the sexes have always been slightly more blurry than I think some people would want us to believe, and we're going to get into that today too. I'm not going to try and proselytize, tell you how to think, but I think there needs to be a point of understanding that things are not as black and white as we might have been led to believe back in 1631 when this painting was completed. But first, let's introduce ourselves to the artist of today's piece, a man by the name of Giuseppe de Ribera, who was born a shoemaker's son in 1591 in the town of Yativa near Valencia in Spain. Now, even though Ribera was born Spanish and considered himself a Spanish artist, our story is not going to take place in Spain. Giuseppe de Ribera himself once stated that Spain was, quote, a loving mother to foreigners and a very cruel stepmother to her own sons. He would actually live and work in the Italian state of Naples for most of his life, possibly first arriving there as early as 1608 or 1609. At that time, Naples was actually under Spanish control, so it's not as big of a leap as we might have thought it would be. His major artistic patrons would not be Italians, but the Spanish viceroys or rulers in Naples. There is sort of a lack of clarity on where Giuseppe de Ribera received his artistic training. It seems likely that he first studied painting in Valencia, but there's also evidence that he worked for a time in Rome, where from 1611 to 1615, he completed a really quite charming series of half-length figures personifying the five senses. These paintings, I'm going to have them on the Instagram for you, they're not quite portraits and they're not meant to be seen as individual people, but rather they are allegories, symbolizing a deeper moral or spiritual meaning than simply existing so that we have a record of a person. The panel for Smell shows a man holding a clove of garlic with an onion sitting on the table before him. Taste features a rather rotund fellow with what I can only describe as a gluttonous expression on his face, sitting before an enormous plate of pasta, some berries, a roll, and a salt shaker, with a wine glass in his hand ready to be refilled. Sight has a man holding a telescope next to an open window, a pair of spectacles sitting on his desk, and touch might be my favorite. In this one, a man facing away from us with his eyes closed, holds a marble bust and is feeling its facial features with his fingertips. The last of the Five Senses series, Hearing, has been lost to us. Looking at these paintings, if you've studied Northern Renaissance or early Baroque art, so in the 1600s roughly, they feel very familiar. 
and they make it clear that Ribera was studying elements of both classical and Renaissance art as he moved through Spain and then Italy. As much as these early paintings carry marks of naturalism derived from the Spanish school of painting, Ribera's works also contain echoes of techniques mastered by the Renaissance painter Raphael, that Baroque genius Caravaggio who had died in 1610, and a man who was not so much a fan of Caravaggio, Guido Reni, who was just 16 years Ribera's senior. So he was combining a lot of different artistic styles as he created his own. Ribera would come to be known for his, quote, obscure and sinister subjects. He was also celebrated for his naturalistic style, in which the subjects of his paintings were depicted true to life. He wasn't embellishing them unnecessarily. He would also master the Baroque techniques of color and tenebrism, which is that contrast, I think we've talked about it before on the show, that's created by deep, rich shadows placed adjacent to highlights, so that the painting seems to glow as well as he focused on dynamism and grandeur. And this all meant that his figures in his paintings are incredibly naturalistic, but they also come across as monumental and larger than life. And it's a really, it's a really beautiful thing to see. And that's what helped him as a Spanish artist advance the Italian Baroque movement. He, he was just that good, what can I say? In 1616, Ribera married the daughter of a painter in Naples, and from this point he is pretty much established there, securing contracts and commissions that led scholars to believe he was considered quite a prominent painter in the region. Even so, Ribera did consider himself a Spanish artist, not an Italian one, probably due to the nationality of his wealthy patrons who were commissioning his art. They, remember, were part of the Spanish ruling class. Those patrons commissioned works for Spanish churches and private collections, virtually the only two places that fine art could actually wind up in the 17th century. When Ribera signed his works, he usually added Espanol to the end of his name in order to denote his Spanish nationality. This would have been an important factor in securing him future work from those wealthy Spanish patrons in the ruling class, who often declined to patronize local Neapolitan artists. He linked himself to Spain so heavily that in 1618, the Bolognese painter Lodovico Caracci wrote that the, quote, young Spaniard working in the manner of Caravaggio was causing his fellow Bolognese artists concern. I think this was supposed to be a compliment. He was, yes, working Italian artists out of hearth and home, but he was so talented that maybe they didn't care. You will sometimes see Ribera referred to, especially by other artists of the time, as Lo Spanioletto, or the Little Spaniard. Now, like other major painters of the Spanish and Italian Baroque, the majority of Ribera's paintings are devoted to religious subjects. You have pictures of Mary, the Virgin, and Child, biblical scenes, and perhaps most famously, grisly, gruesome depictions of the martyrdom of the saints. Unlike some of his contemporaries, however, Ribera was not limited to religious paintings. His body of work also included mythological subjects such as gods and goddesses, portraits, and even that little series devoted to the five senses and other allegories like it. Across his early works, Ribera's artistic style is pretty sharp and his figures are rigidly outlined and shaded. As he matured into his career, however, his canvases take on this, quote, more luminous golden overall tonality. He became increasingly interested in color and employed more expansive but balanced compositional schemas. That comes to us from the National Gallery of Art. 
The Getty Museum, too, notes that his works became, quote, softer in tone and more classical in feeling, with lighter color palettes derived from Venetian or Flemish influences as his career progressed. And it's right around this period of transition, I would say a little bit before the transition takes place, in 1630 to 1631, that he completed the painting we are going to hone in on today of a woman called Magdalena Ventura. As always, you can pull up the painting uh, to Google it in the episode description. I will also have it posted, along with some supplemental images, over on the show's Instagram, which is at Art of History Podcast. But I would encourage you to pull it up um, at this point, if you can. Please do it safely, if you're driving, um, to take a look as we're going to dive right in. So all of the information known about the woman, yes, woman, depicted in this painting, Magdalena Ventura, comes from quotes and documents referring to the painting. So bear that in mind. I'm not saying that the information presented along with this work of art is not accurate. In fact, I believe that Ribera's intention was to create a document of this woman's life with the painting. But just keep in mind that all of the information about her is kind of being presented to us after the painting has been completed. Magdalena would have been better known to viewers of this painting as the bearded woman of Abruzzi, which is a region in Naples. The painting displays her standing in the center of the vertical canvas, almost staring the viewer down. She's making eye contact with us, which in itself is a very powerful thing. She's dressed in yellow and brown clothing, which appears almost robe-like, with a lace-edged apron around her waist. Of course, that is not the most striking thing about this woman. Um, She also sports a full black beard. Almost secondary to the beard are her receding hairline, which is covered by a demure white cap, and the thick black eyebrows, which grace her weathered face. In addition, it is with large, veiny hands that she clasps a baby to her bared right breast. The child is wrapped in a red swaddling blanket and has a little sprig of greenery attached to its head wrap. Magdalena's husband, that's her husband, who is standing behind her in the shadows, with his face appearing to hover over her right shoulder and that bared breast. In my mind, this is to indicate his involvement in generating the child. To the right of Magdalena in the painting are two stelas, the top one listing the details of their family in Latin, uh, proclaiming her as a wonder of nature. This stela claims that at the time of the painting she was 52, but it was when she was 37, having already given birth to three sons, that her beard suddenly grew in. The inscription, translated to English, reads, Magdalena Ventura from the town of Accomoli in central Italy, or in the vulgar tongue Abruzzi in the Kingdom of Naples, aged 52 years, the unusual thing about her being that when she was 37, she began to become hairy and grew a beard so long and thick that it seems more like that of any bearded gentleman than of a woman who had borne three sons by her husband, Felici Diamici, whom, it helpfully adds, you see here. I think that last bit uh, went bled a little bit into the second stone, but the second stone also records the name of the painter and the commissioner of the piece. It continues, Giuseppe de Ribera, a Spanish gentleman of the Order of the Cross of Christ, uh, painted this scene marvelously from life on the orders of Ferdinand II, Third Duke of Alcala, Viceroy of Naples, on the 16th February 1631. The inscription's declarative statement that the picture was painted, quote, marvelously from life is kind of reminiscent of language used to provoke wonder when viewing other oddities. I mean, you can think of, have you ever been to a carnival or a circus where there's a little sideshow tent and 
all of these plaques outside tell you that what you're going to see is is true to life. It's never before been seen before, but it's real and it's it's here right in front of you, that kind of thing. But Ribera's unrelenting naturalism is kind of what makes it believable in this context that he has indeed painted Magdalena from life. And it sets the image apart from other sensationalized images that usually come to mind when we think of depictions of so-called quote-unquote freaks. Ribera has used precise, masterfully executed details such as the folds and stitches of Magdalena's outfit, leading one art critic, Barry Wind, to write the, quote, astonishing array of textural effects ranges from the rough, wrinkled visages of Magdalena and her disconsolate husband to the delineation of the delicate fringe upon her apron. And the insistent light highlighting the figure of Magdalena and the child she holds affirms the tangible volume of their forms. Translation, we know we're seeing a painting, but Ribera has represented it so well that we can't help but believe that we're looking upon a real person. The tone of the painting is, like I said, more grave and even empathetic or sympathetic than other depictions of physically different individuals that you would find in the Baroque period, even sometimes within Ribera's own body of work. While many artists resorted to quote-unquote buffoonery and mockery in their depiction of these people who had physical differences, Ribera, quote, creates a painting utterly devoid of humor. The bearded woman that we're seeing before us is invested with a psychological depth that makes the painting more than just an inconsequential curiosity. There's a kind of dignity to her person that cuts right through any possibility of the viewer seeking to mock her. And to create that serious tone, Ribera is using the heightened dramatic effects of Baroque art to his um, advantage here. Magdalena and her husband are given weight through the visual effects of light and shadow in the painting, as well as through the way that Ribera has positioned them and dressed them and made them look at us. These elements also give us a wealth of information about how the artist wants us to understand them. Ribera intentionally depicted Magdalena breastfeeding a son to show that she is anatomically a woman. Although I do want to note that if she is 52 years old, or is supposed to be 52 in this portrait, she was likely beyond her childbearing years, and the infant in, in the painting is probably a stand-in for her own three children. The inscription, after all, suggests that she had finished having children before her beard grew in back when she was 37 years old. But the infant is still an important symbol of her acceptance of the classically feminine role of motherhood. And it's her interaction with the child, rather than its actual identity, that is important here, as that seems to underscore her feminine nature. One source added, <laughs> I hate this, one source added that she is also, quote, of diminished sexual attractiveness as another reason that the child can't possibly be hers. And that's kind of harsh. I didn't think we needed to go there. Her female nature is also underscored by a bobbin and spindle which rest on the top of the stones to her left-hand side, which act as attributes of feminine industry, namely domesticity in this time. Meanwhile, Magdalena's facial features, her beard, and her muscular figure juxtapose the womanly tasks depicted for us with the reality of her quote-unquote masculine gender presentation. Art historian Barry Wind writes, the beard is traditionally associated with masculine force. 
The church fathers were very clear about this. Clement of Alexandria, for example, viewed the beard as a manifestation of man's superiority, counseling men to grow beards to demonstrate their difference from women. And Augustine considered the beard a proper, quote, manly adornment. This gave rise to the proverbial statement, a beard suits a man. In what Wind describes as a medieval compendium of beard lore, the Apologia de Barbus, it was explicitly stated that it was against the accustomed course of nature for a woman to be bearded. And physiognomists of the time, who would have been people who believed that facial features denoted something about a person's personality or moral character, claimed that bearded women inherently had manly characters. We're going to circle back to that idea and explore and unpack the wider connotations of that worldview kind of towards the end of the episode. I'm going to take a little break right now, and when I come back, we will continue breaking down the physical details that Ribera has worked into the portrait. And we are back. Um, if you hear anything in terms of background noise as I continue this episode, it's because in the time I took to go get a drink of water, it has started sleeting outside and I record not only next to a window, but also next to my radiator, which also kicked in once it started sleeting. So I don't know what fun noises are going to be in my little recording space in the next couple minutes, but we'll find out together. So returning to our portrait of Magdalena Ventura and moving away from the most obvious marker of her quote-unquote masculine gender presentation, let's also look at some secondary markers that Ribera has included. These include the fact that her body is big and muscular, as are her hands. Her hands are also kind of veiny and hairy as well. Even her finely colored clothing, which one critic I think aptly described as gender-neutral robes, they allude to a manly figure, as if ironically recalling the image of a biblical prophet. To top it all off, Magdalena is contrasted with the figure of her husband, Felici de Amici, I think is how we're going to pronounce that, who stands in the shadows behind her. I find it really incredible that his name translates, I think, to happy friend, Felici meaning Felicity or happy, and Amici friend. And while I have to believe that that was really his name, if that's what Ribera is recording it as, it's a bit on the nose, isn't it? For what other demeanor would you expect to find in a man who would stand by his wife's side in the year 1631 as she has, it, it, she's taken on these explosively non-gender conforming identities? It's kind of amazing. Felici does appear next to Magdalena much older and more feeble than she is. Their contrasting facial features and positioning allude to the idea that Magdalena's reputation overshadows that of her husband, quote, turning the typical marital balance upside down. A write-up in The Guardian, I think, kind of harshly says that he, quote, looks less of a man than she does. Another description called her husband a, quote, timid sort wearing an understandably befuddled expression. The idea, I think, is that Magdalena's husband has been emasculated by the fact that she is presenting such typically or stereotypically manly features to the world. Or at least that's what audiences have read into the picture over centuries. For all we know, he was completely content and had no qualms about his wife's appearance, but, you know, we also don't know that for a fact. 
what I think we can conclude is that Magdalena's grave, resigned demeanor and the worried expression of her husband make the viewer feel sympathy for them, as opposed to disgust or amusement. The painting also shows Magdalena with a long, untrimmed beard. This is in stark contrast with her husband's more fashionably trimmed beard for the time. Magdalena likely would have kept her beard as long as possible, as she was possibly the primary source of income in her household as a result of exhibiting her facial hair. But the reality is right there before us. Quote, the pointed contrast between the masculine bearded Magdalena and her feminine duties of nursing and spinning doubtless allude to the idea of the world turned upside down. This is a phrase that Barry Wind uses quite a bit in his um, work that was originally published in 1998. That is titled, can I scroll there please? A Foul and Pestilent Congregation, Images of Freaks in Baroque Art. In it, he discusses partially the way that these contradictions of gender presentation would have rubbed a Baroque viewer in some really uncomfortable ways. Quote, Magdalena, the tender nurturer, is also virile and full-bearded, thus confirming the strange tricks that nature can play in an uncertain world. And this would have really caused a Baroque audience some disquiet, because there were supposed to be these established gender roles for men and women. Magdalena's, quote, apparent defiance of 17th century images of womanhood made her a celebrity in Italy, but this also ostracized her from what her contemporaries would have understood as being a proper woman and a proper wife. Heavy air quotes around those two things. Other art critics have noted that just the simple act of Magdalena standing as she nurses this child is an unusual pose for a 17th century woman. This pose was associated with accounts of strong African women nursing in unusual ways. Painting Magdalena in such a manner would have served to emphasize her defiance and her strength in embracing her quote-unquote manly side. And perhaps this is why Jonathan Jones of The Guardian called her in a write-up a quote, almost supernaturally powerful assertion of individuality. But we have no way of knowing whether Magdalena saw herself as defiant or whether she was simply living her life, dealing as best she could with the quote, trick that God had played on her the year she turned 37 and gave her a beard. Rather than seeing a person who was consciously breaking gender boundaries, it's possible that we really are just getting a glimpse at a woman who was making do with the hand she was dealt. Now, Giuseppe de Ribera's painting of Magdalena was mentioned in various journals and diaries from his day. And it was supposedly the Duke of Alcala, the Viceroy of Naples, who was one of Ribera's most faithful patrons, who was so fascinated by rumors he had heard about Magdalena that he commissioned the artist to paint her portrait. The Duke's successor as Viceroy, the Count of Monterey, was also fascinated with people who exhibited curious physical features. An inventory of the Count's collection, taken in 1653, listed a painting of a, quote, monstrous naked child by Ribera. Barry Wind writes, quote, Unfortunately, that painting is now lost, but its high value, 1,000 reales, equivalent to a painting in the collection attributed to Raphael, underscores the special interest in human oddity. And for her own part, Magdalena was not the only figure of a bearded woman to be depicted in the Spanish Baroque. There was also José Sánchez Cotán's Brigada del Rio, the bearded lady of Peñaranda. 
The Museo del Prado tells us that Brigado was a, quote, well-known character in the late 16th century, as indicated by the descriptions of her in various literary and visual accounts. She allegedly visited the court in Madrid in the 1590s. I have the portrait of Brigada on the Instagram for you to reference. This image, like that of Magdalena, seems to emphasize the, quote, documentary nature of many works of this type, with an inscription once again appearing within the painting itself, which identifies the sitter, indicates her age, and specifies the date on which the image was recorded. Still, works like this that, quote, reflect a parascientific and morbid interest in natural anomalies and deviations were associated in the collective imagination with, well, vices. Lust and devilry being two of them that the Prado references on their website. 17th century Prince of Bearded Ladies also appeared in England, telling us that this phenomenon was international in scale, and also driving home the point that these images were not just seen as a curiosity or a documentation of people living their lives, but that there was something deeper going on here, that these images were affecting spheres such as morality and philosophy and religion in some cases. The portrait of Magdalena was included in the Duke of Alcala's gallery of portraits of people deemed, quote, unusual or bizarre, particularly for their physical characteristics. This was an entire body of works that Baroque viewers considered to represent low lifes in, in a translation that I saw. Many of the traits that were depicted in these paintings were popular among traveling acts of the period, such as dwarfism. Artists and collectors seemed to have a morbid curiosity for, if not an obsession with, what they considered the freakish. Paintings of dwarves, buffoons, gluttons, and general immoral behavior and debauchery were all lumped in together in this type of painting. Art historian Barry Wind once again notes that, quote, a delight in the unusual was consonant with the contemporary collection of other exotica, convoluted shells and strange animals, but human, quote, freaks provoked more than curiosity. Their representation ranged from taxonomic fascination to derisive mockery. They were frequently cast as imperfect foils to the fashionable courtiers who sought aggrandizement through juxtaposition. The images were also exploited as metaphors for a favorite theme of the period, the world turned upside down, which we did talk about uh, in relation to Magdalena and her husband's relationship. Wind continues, quote, In this synthesis of repulsion and fascination, mockery and dread, the portrayal of these others reveals a dark underside of Baroque culture that has never been thoroughly investigated or understood, until presumably <laughs> he studied it in 1998. How did this obsession with the bizarre and these juxtapositions play into understandings of Magdalena's beard? Well, the bearded woman, to a Baroque audience, quote, possessed sinister negative connotations which extended beyond the idea of Marvel and the conceit of the reversible world. One treatise associated bearded women with, quote, very bad habits and lechery. Another, in 1610, wrote that the bearded woman, quote, in her confusion of sexual roles, becomes a paradigm of the abominable. I have an image from this, an emblem from this uh, work over on the Instagram, and the inscription on it declares in Latin, neither one nor the other, indicating that bearded women were seen as occupying this in-between space that was not defined as being fully a woman or fully a man. An added text to this emblem in Spanish reads, I am lowly like a horrid and rare monster. 
Now, that's obviously, it's horrible. Uh, but Rivera, in his depiction of Magdalena, is not leaning into those classically understood ideas of what this woman would have been telling the world about her character, right, with her, with her facial hair. I would say he's taking a step back with his depiction of Magdalena and is sort of valuing objective truth and, and representation over all of those suggestions that this needed to have some moral connotation to go with it. Or on the flip side, connotations that art needed to depict the beautiful or the deep in order to be valuable. He's simply representing a woman for us. I don't think he's necessarily also asking his viewer to contemplate any moral questions by presenting her to us. He would have been aware of the context in which she was viewed in their time or which her facial features were viewed, but I don't necessarily think he was condemning her to be bound by those conventions as he immortalized her on the canvas. This also wouldn't be the only time that Rivera lent his brush to this sort of history record-keeping mission with his art. He was later commissioned to make another portrait, this time of a, quote, club-footed boy, the painting is aptly called The Club Foot, in 1642. For a long time, it was also thought that this piece was commissioned by the Viceroy of Naples, but modern research has traced the commission of The Club Foot to a Flemish art dealer living in Naples, possibly named Ferdinand van den Einden. I have this one over on the Instagram for you to take a look at as well. The Flemish had long adored paintings of beggars and other subjects like them, and during the Baroque period, they did often commission Spanish painters to execute such works. This would explain why Ribera, with his trademark naturalism, was thought to be up to the mark. You can also see, if you look at this picture, how his style has evolved from the 1630s. The stark contrast of shadow and spotlight are gone, and he's returned to canvases that are seemingly bathed in soft light. And yet this work, The Club Foot, from his last decade of life, is neither a, quote, document of bizarre curiosity, nor a patently derisive depiction of the infirm. A club foot is a condition where, at birth, the tissues connecting a person's muscles to the bones of their feet are shorter than usual. Usually this is because the Achilles tendon is too short, causing the foot to turn inward, often so severely that the bottom of the foot faces sideways or even upward. But that's not where your eye is immediately drawn when you look at this painting. The boy gazes out of the canvas at us, again meeting our eyes, with a toothy grin. He carries a crutch slung over his shoulder like a military pike or a musket, and he holds a paper that proclaims, Give me alms for the love of God. The clubfoot is now housed in the Louvre, and it got its current title when it was catalogued there in 1870. However, modern research suggests that it may be misnamed, as an orthopedic surgeon examined the boy's features and concluded that it's possible that Ribeiro was not attempting to paint someone with a club foot at all, but rather someone with cerebral palsy. In the 17th century, artists and, well, doctors in general, would not have had the language that we have now to diagnose the boy with something like that, and the understanding of his condition would not have been anywhere close to what it would be today. But Ribera has simply painted what he's seen, and there's even that little sympathetic note in the painting asking the viewer to give alms for the love of God. This approach is one aspect of why Ribera was so successful. Today we know of well over a hundred surviving paintings, drawings, and prints that can be attributed to him. 
By the 1640s, he had a workshop that would churn out paintings in his name, to which he would then affix his signature. This is a tactic that has been employed across art history, with artists such as Michelangelo, Rembrandt, Rubens, all the way forward in time to Andy Warhol and Jeff Koons being other notable examples of artists with workshops helping them produce their pieces to keep up with demand. Giuseppe de Ribera would inspire artists such as Francisco de Zerberon, Salvatore Rosa, and Luca Giordano. He also, it seems, had an influence on the artist Francisco de Goya, who was an avid fan of the aristocratic collections across Madrid. He references Ribera's painting of Magdalena Ventura in a drawing from 1816 to 1820, in which you see a bearded woman cradling a child who is nursing while she sits in a chair. The inscription given to the drawing reads, This woman was painted in Naples by Giuseppe Ribera, called Lo Spagnoletto, around the year 1640. The Guardian's Jonathan Jones wrote of Magdalena Ventura in 2016, saying, quote, Art in Ribera's day saw women as goddesses and saints, martyrs and nudes. Here, a woman with a man's beard and a man's face stands breastfeeding her baby. Ribera sees beyond the conventions of art and the assumptions of his time. If someone does not fit our expectations, their uniqueness has to be recognized for what it is. Ventura is a fact. She is real. Here she stands. In her absolute originality, Ribera sees not just some freak of nature, but the wonder and enigma of individuality itself. Magdalena Ventura broke every law of her world, and Ribera immortalized her for doing so. Whether that makes Magdalena Ventura a hero of gender fluidity, I will leave up to you. On a grand scale, humans have been fascinated by these contradictions that seem to exist within people for, I mean, millennia, for probably our entire existence. Art is the perfect place to explore. Are these really contradictions or are we just people who are existing and living our lives with the hand that we have been dealt? It certainly seems like that conversation is not something that's going away anytime soon, with it remaining just as relevant today in 2023 as it seems to have been in the minds of Baroque viewers in the 1600s. So again, like I said, I don't have any grand point to make. I just, I think I would like to leave that for you to chew on today. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this exploration of a really curious piece of art that I think many people wish we knew more about, you know, some some documentary evidence of commentary would be, ugh, we would love that, wouldn't we? If you have any suggestions for what you would like to see next on the show, I invite you not only to send me a DM on the Instagram or shoot me an email at artofhistorypod at gmail.com, but also to take that airwave listener survey. The data that we're going to get from that hopefully will be instrumental in shaping the way that this podcast comes to you in the next year or so. Once again, the link to the survey is going to be in the episode description, or you can go to surveymonkey.com slash r slash airwave. And if you would like to keep up with me and the work that I do outside of the podcast, I'm on TikTok and Instagram at Matta of Fact. That's M-A-T-T-A underscore of underscore fact. Um... Right now, the show is still, my plan is one episode a month for the time being. So if you would, if you get bored and, and want to interact with me outside of the podcast format, that's the place to do it. Thank you so much for listening. As always, it has been a great pleasure and I will see you in the next one. Mm-hmm.